I was never dreading it. I wasn't dreading it ever. But I mean, I, the, the, the interviews can be quite um, one-dimensional. But you hit me straight on with the, the questions. That was brilliant. It's the best one I've ever done. Oh, wonderful! You should That's be a really... professional interviewer, yeah. and you are. So. And I am. There we go. Yes, yeah, so, I just make you? up as I Hello everyone and welcome to the EdTech podcast and this series episode of the VocTech podcast Learning Continued which seeks to explore the intersection of adult learning and tech. How are you all? A few weeks back we got listener updates on how you thought coronavirus might impact online learning and remote working. Now, given how fast everything is changing, I'd love for you to simply share your daily circumstance with our listeners. If you're keen, go to www.speakpipe.com forward slash the EdTech podcast, where you can record and re-record your 90 second voicemail. How are you trying to stay motivated? What are you juggling? What worries you and what would you like to share with others? I'd love to compile these thoughts from around the world. And last time we had 14 contributors from China to the US and the UK. So we very much are excited about what we see come in this time around. A big thank you to the UFI VocTech Trust for supporting this series and supporting the use of technology to deliver training and learning in these unprecedented times. UFI are pulling together a VocTech resources hub with solutions and tools relevant to the fight against coronavirus from the community of projects that they've supported, such as the Cuppa app, which trains on the application and correct removal of PPE. For all the details, go to ufi.co.uk. In this week's episode, we throw back to a recording with Dr. Peter Shuki, Academic Group Leader for Creative and Digital at the University Centre of Blackburn College. Peter was the 2019 national winner of the Festival of Learning Social Impact Award. And in this episode, we talk about connecting learning with purpose. This episode is for anyone interested in the evolution of MOOCs and the return to smaller cohorts of online learners affecting change in real life actions. Though this episode was recorded last year, many of us will be able to pick out the similarities in what is happening today as we continue to connect online to work, play and provide meaning to our lives whilst in quarantine, even if the days of outdoor lectures are somewhat limited at the present time. Ahead of our feature interview, I reconnected with Peter to invite him to give his thoughts on community open online courses in the age of coronavirus. And here is what he said. Hi Sophie, um, long time it feels like since we last spoke and what a world, what a different world we're in now and nobody could foresee this and what's happened is a lot of the things that we were talking about have been manifest I suppose in terms of who's educating who and where they're doing it and how they're doing it and what it means and what is education, massive questions that people are asking and I think the communities are rallying around each other. They're often using digital to do it. And while I'm teaching from home and I've seen uh, others doing the same thing and, and my students, and, you know, some are enjoying it, some are not. I mean, largely, I think, you know, with a few teething problems, but we're enjoying it. But the most exciting thing has been how people have come together to use technology to teach. And it hasn't been something 
that's had to go through institutions. It's been live, it's been vibrant. The natural educators have come to the fore. Grace and Perry on TV. Do, I mean, I know that's like a huge corporation event to do, to put that together. But the, the YouTubing, yoga, meditation, exercise in the morning, people learning languages, people learning card tricks, everything's happening. And so I think, um, you know, a horrible time, um, a really frightening time for many but also in terms of what we were talking about, there is a sense that this might be um, a chance to reevaluate what education is. John McNamara from the Senior Inventor Community at IBM Hersey also called in to explain more about their project where students, business and university are coming together to assess how technology might relieve loneliness in the elderly and those especially vulnerable during social isolation. Here he is to talk more about their collaboration with UCL. Hello, I hope you're well. My name is John McNamara and I work as a senior inventor of the IBM Hersey Labs and I'm also the UK University Lead for IBM. I'm really pleased to be able to tell you about something called the IBM Industry Exchange Network. This collaboration between IBM and University College London, made possible by Dr. Dean Muhammad Ali and Dr. Graham Roberts from UCL, seeks to remove barriers to innovation by linking industry, IBM technology, IBM mentorship with talented students at UCL to create innovative proof of concepts designed to change the world for the better. One such project seeks to address the effects of isolation. Across every age and demographic, society is starting to see the first-hand effects of long-term isolation, but the loneliness epidemic was already a growing concern for the elderly well before the first confirmed case of COVID-19. A major physiological consequences of loneliness have been documented, Medical research cites loneliness contributing to a 26% increase in overall mortality rates, not to mention social and economic consequences of the heavy burden on caregivers to provide support. The IBM Institute for Business Value, IBV, recently released a report on loneliness in the era of social distancing and researched how loneliness directly impacts personal, economic and social well-being in older adults outlining the major role technology can play in driving positive change. This new proof of concept is designed to use 3D visualisation technology along with IBM Watson to provide access to a virtual world where those who may be vulnerable to isolation can socialise in scenes from a park to a busy streetside cafe or a restaurant. This proof of concept is designed to work from entry-level tablets on Android and iOS all the way up to state-of-the-art virtual reality systems. To find out more about the IBM IXN and the projects, please go to ibm.com forward slash UK to the IBM newsroom. Thank you very much. Thank you, Peter. Thanks, John. Okay, here we go. Okay, cool. Well, 
Um, absolutely delighted to have uh, Dr. Peter Shuki, uh, academic group leader uh, of creative and digital at the University Centre Blackburn College uh, on the line. So welcome, Peter. Hello. Um, by way of quick introduction to our listeners, uh, Dr. Peter Shuki teaches at the University Centre at Blackburn College with a focus on technology-enhanced learning and educational practice in a digital age. His passion for accessible education led him to create community open online courses, or uh, KOOKs, if you will, um, a non-profit, community-focused organisation that works with individuals and groups to engage more adults in learning and deliver new and different learning opportunities for people from all walks of life. Um, he is the 2019 national winner of the Festival of Learning Social Impact Award, as, men, as well as uh, other awards previously. And he has previously said, I teach on an Education Studies BA Ons programme and work with courses in coaching and mentoring. My classes include the ways, the ways we use technology and research to develop our awareness of the world around us and practice skills that help us make a difference to our worlds. My students are co-explorers and co-researchers. We work together to explore what education means and by including our communities, we make that purposeful and powerful. So that all sounds really interesting. I can't wait to dig into that. So welcome once again, Peter. So first question, uh, just to get us started, uh, what five words would your friends use to describe you? Uh, that's a tricky question to open up with. Um, I suppose, well, well, I hope um, friendly and I, I'd like to say innovative, but that would be more to do with work and, and I get used a lot of creative, scatty, um, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'd have to ask them, and I never do. <laughs> well, something, something for the weekend then. Um, another, another. Just to start off, what are some of the formative learning experiences you've had in your own life since you were a child? Um, I saw, that's a that's a great question, and we talk about it a lot when we go through um, with education studies students because how we get to where we are is is very significant um, and, I, and I suppose really that I didn't have a particularly positive experience of school and I went to a, a comprehensive school which was frankly boring and, uh, and, you know, and, and I found that the idea of learning that was crushed and put into small boxes and was very disciplined was was like unpleasant you know and, and I was aware from an early age and we've talked about this with friends uh, uh, since and, and I think it does drive me that very much that concept of education was more to do without controlling on, on a societal level rather than growth or development but it was a while ago you know it's not it's not contemporary my schooling experience but it was unpleasant and um the boredom came from it, not because of, oh, you know, learning is boring and, and other things are exciting, but because learning is exciting and mm. it was made boring. And and I think in, uh, I went to university in London in the late 80s and that kind of, there was two things that happened to me there. One is that I realised that education could be exciting. I did cultural studies and it was a, an absolutely amazing course. I, I read so much there and, and, and watched so much and, and and became involved in different things that I found were really powerful, 
but I also then became aware of being northern and being working class and being in a situation where those things weren't actually that and necessarily I, I, familiar. I'm kind of imagining you doing the, having this sort of massive educational experience um, in, in some amazing 80s outfits as well. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I was fully engaged with the, the outfits of the 80s and the haircuts as well. Fantastic. We'll, so, have, to, we'll have to dig out some old photos for when this episode goes out. Yeah, I think we'll leave those where they are <laughs> um, buried. So you mentioned that, you know, you really um, delved into all the, the reading and really engaged in all the reading and, and, and reading a lot around that time. Are there any uh, kind of texts that you go back to or that were sort of formative in that way um, during that time? Individual texts, well, um, they go prior to that. I mean, when I was at school, in my I suppose mid-teens I was reading a lot of the, the beat poets. I found those really exciting and then I've used those since. But that's not what formed part of my degree. I, I suppose what I read around in terms of the degree was a lot about uh, the concept of cultural studies mm-hmm. through Stuart Hall, mm-hmm. um, through the notion of multiple perspectives so those things started to open up and and there was different things you know there was the Gilroy stuff and uh, in in terms of who you are in terms of a society and and what the dominant messages are in a society and I found that really liberating too liberating in fact because I just decided to go and work in London rather than actually continue my studies there and it took me ages to go back to it so the, the reading then was it was all around the idea of there's not a single text, but if you look at Roland Barthes, if you look mm-hmm. at uh, any of the, the ideas that questioned the concept of a single and sole and common sense notion of knowledge, that became where I wanted to be. It became what I was interested in. And I realised it wasn't in universities. I realised that despite that being the place that had opened up these as theoretical ideas, actually that was already happening. That's really fascinating. And so then when you went on to work, what, what, what did you kind of do there? And also one of the questions we're asking all of our guests is, you know, did you have any jobs prior to those that perhaps make sense in what you do today um, that also helped develop your skill set that you draw on today? So, for example, whether it's a paper round or, you know, working in a hospital, are there things that people are less well versed and know about about you in terms of work? Um, I've had a hundred plus jobs, so that's something to know about. And, and but I've had very few since I was hmm, thirty. So yeah, I've I've become stable since I've entered education as an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, but it led to me being in many many different. So I put tents up in France, and um, mm-hmm. I taught in Greece, taught English in Greece. So there's a lot of people with northern accents in <laughs> the, in the Dodecanese right now. Um, yeah, I uh, I've worked in warehouses, offices, factories. I've sold holidays. Mm-hmm. I've stuffed advent calendars into envelopes for months and months on end. I've worked in a job centre. I've worked in. Uh, I was a gardener at St Paul's Cathedral in the Barbican centre uh, yeah in the Barbican at the time when I was working there part of our job was doing the the window boxes of the rich and famous on the Barbican <laughs> centre and then there's an ornamental pond next to the uh, it's the, the music college 
that backs onto the Barbican or did at least in those times where there were the catacombs with a, a host of really wild cats that lived in the catacombs <laughs> at Europa. Uh, <laughs> not many people saw those because you had to cross the ornamental pond, which I did in waders to take cans of <laughs> discarded pop-out. And <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, I love that question. So I've done hundreds of jobs. So that, 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 was, that was a good question for me. And so that, that those periods, so when I left university, the idea that I left in uh, 1989 I didn't walk into a great job and all was perfect mm. I just had my eyes open to the fact that I could continue this but there was no real route to it so I'll just go and live a multiple diverse <laughs> life which I did which was quite random and ended in lots of different addresses in and around London before I came back north in the mid 90s and um, yeah just, uh, eventually I left to go and teach in Greece and that took me to a to a point in life where I started to see education differently, mm-hmm. that it had a purpose. Before that, I didn't see the purpose. You know, so the, the, the hundreds of different jobs, it was brilliant. I met so many different people who taught me lots of different things, and it's what led to Cooch, you know, and, and you're the, the first person I've had this interview type thing with, where I've got there, you, you're very good at interviewing. <laughs> I see that in you now. <laughs> you're very kind well it's almost like you were living out that kind of uh, uh sort of bartez in in real life by having all those different jobs and having all those different perspectives rather than having one dominant career or something yeah but also it, it wasn't the meanness of it you know that, that, that i was there obviously because otherwise i wouldn't have been able to see it but actually what i realized is that so many people in so many different places have so much knowledge and and when when i come to the idea of the university lecturer which i suppose defines me in some terms that's Mm. what would be on my job description but actually in all the university lecturers that you meet or the idea of the university is a place of knowledge it's only a tiny part of knowledge but it's got such a dominant Mm -hmm. role in the in you know in where we go to seek it and who's allowed to dis to to say it and who's allowed to stand in front of 200 other people and speak it out Mm -hmm. when actually you see that everywhere you go you know people are rich with knowledge most of it hidden and, and disallowed you know so Absolutely. I, I think that, that's what I found and, that's, and, that's what I encountered and he who shouts loudest isn't always you know the most knowledgeable but um yeah oh, yeah absolutely yeah absolutely right so um we've done a lot on the podcast around MOOCs so we've previously interviewed the likes of the edX CEO um, Class Central who track the sort of MOOC space and Future Learn who would probably say oh you know we don't do MOOCs um, but could you explain to our listener what is a kook okay well a kook began through a MOOC in a in one form I I was involved with the, 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 do you know the, if I talk about the two types of MOOCs or connectivist MOOCs and X MOOCs, is that familiar or should I talk about those a little bit? Please expand, yeah. Okay, so the original original MOOC um, and the concept of the MOOC, I think it's attributed to a guy called Dave Cormier, the term Mm. MOOC. Um, But there were two people that I think tend to be at the heart of the MOOC model are George Siemens and Stephen Downs, the two Canadians who talked about connectivism and this idea that the technology 
in society now and and especially in in the 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 way that we communicate and create knowledge is so significant we need a new learning theory and that learning theory will lead to something akin to a MOOC so platforms networks of individuals who are not necessarily in institutions but who are all mm. working together to create a place that shares creates develops transforms what learning is hmm. and they they did uh, a number of different MOOCs there was one in I think Change 2011 was the one I was involved in first but after that it became something else and so they would be what you would call the C or connectivist MOOCs after that they became something more they became more institutional and very firmly fixed in blue chip organizations backed by hedge funds and these would be the ex MOOCs the things like Udemy and Coursera and these things that were backed by or created generally by people with a strong interest in artificial intelligence and you know data mining and and they became the MOOCs that are very well discussed and popular mm -hmm and used by American universities and then adapted by European and UK universities and FutureLearn's one of those, I think. Um, you know, an idea of a collaboration of universities to create courses. Mm. And even, so in the ex-MOOC model, I find that, you know, that what they replicate very much is the idea that knowledge begins in the university and it goes outwards. And it's developed by experts. Those experts are very familiar because they are the leading university lecturers in any particular subject. And they become the branding and the selling points. Mm. So they become an online version of a very familiar university model. University at the top, everybody else below, knowledge drifting out, dripping out, going around wherever it is. If you can get hold of it, great. And, and there was a real power to that as well in terms of the idea was that MOOCs could somehow overcome uh, the paucity of educational opportunity in poorer areas, geographically, globally, not just in the UK, but globally. You know, the, 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 there was a, myth, a, a mythical figure that's been chastised quite a lot about the, you know, the Turkish shepherd who could... Um, just by having internet access, have access to the the greatest things on earth, the greatest knowledge, the greatest learning, the greatest mm. concepts. They would all be at his fingertips. But what was always poss possibly a barrier, and I saw this in Change Eleven with the the connectivist MOOCs, which had so much to, so much that was brilliant about them. But still, they were dominated by academics. And when I showed them to students of varying levels, and we talked about the use of them, actually asking people to get involved with them, they would not touch them. They were terrified of the discourse. The discourse that took place was really powerful, filled with jargon, mm -hmm. filled with academics of a certain level. And so they became something that was not accessible. Despite the brilliance of the model, the brilliance of the potential of the model, they were not accessible. And what we did was we, we looked at, I was very interested in, as a literacy educator in the past, that was job 110. <laughs> when I was in a literacy educator, I was really interested in a, a guy called Paolo Freire, mm. um, popular education. And 
the, 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 the tenant of what Paolo Freire says is that everybody possesses knowledge, which I knew to be true, and that meaningful education has got to come from dialogue with people. And what I could see in the MOOCs was that there was no dialogue. There was a talking. There was lots and lots and lots of talking, but there was no dialogue. And power and how much you were heard, and as you mentioned yourself earlier, you know, he who shouts loudest, <laughs> you know, you, you can dominate a conversation, but it doesn't mean you've got the most to say. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I saw MOOCs, and Kooks was a response to that. So we created it with the idea that anybody could create a course, not as a meaningless term, oh yeah, everybody can do it, but actually a recognition that everybody does have something to teach, what they don't have are places to teach it very often. So it was an idea that we can create a platform and replace the massive with community because we weren't about collecting data. We weren't about impressing anybody else. It was all about saying to people, you know, if you've got something to teach, you can create a group of people and that might spiral and you might get more people. But even if you don't get more people, what you've done is you've made a mark, you've put your knowledge somewhere, you've developed a presence. And that's what Kooks has become. That's what it was initial aim was. And over a series of years now, six or seven years, it has developed that in lots of different ways. But the idea is that Kooks becomes a place where everybody can have their knowledge recognised and they can create communities that will benefit from their knowledge. That's really, really interesting. So, I mean, in terms of the people that are now using this platform that you've developed, um, what kind of variety of people are engaging with it and using it? So both creating and sort of consuming and engaging with the content. Well, I suppose one of the, the most initial, the, what has initial and has continued is there are a lot of people who work in formal education that use it. And they use it for ways that are not about formal education, which which surprised me. Um, I did quite a bit of research. In fact, that the PhD that I did was based on the uses of kooks. Um, and one of the most exciting things, I suppose, was that this concept of a bridge between the community and the college I knew about and I'd read about in lots of different areas and places and had experienced working as an illiteracy educator. But actually, it was really interesting that people in formal education who were teaching on higher education courses were fully aware that some of the material they were using or some of the access ways they had were were limited. So I had business courses that had international students that realized they were losing quite a lot of international students so what they created on the kooks was a guide created by current students here now about what living in the uk was like for students who were coming from the middle east so it became something that they created as a team but they left to students to develop and it went to students who had yet to arrive and agents as well which is a a development that happens now in the way that students arrive in the UK. But the the concept of being here was was the content of that kook. So it was something they couldn't put on a course here or they couldn't attach to their course materials because nobody would have access to it because you needed to be already a student to have access mm-hmm. to that material. So it became something there that they could talk about and do in safety, doing this space that was specifically for a group. 
I had a group in Leeds, well, in West Yorkshire, who were a family of, or they were the families of people with schizophrenia. And what they wanted to do, this group went, they went on to buy a house and, and then use it as a respite centre and it's still going really strong. But where that came from was the idea that they were not medical definitions they didn't want to operate to a medical definition and they didn't want to operate to a problematic social definition you know so that they could access these um services and they could become part of this they wanted something where actually hearing voices and having the condition of schizophrenia was actually normal and so they could talk to each other in a different way so that was something that they approached me and i went to speak to them and we talked about the course and they set that up and it ran for a a year and a half on the kook but then it just became something they ran in real life and the kook became like a kind of meaningless element of that <laughs> which was good to see and so, now yeah i've got the, the, but the latest one the one that i've had the most numbers on and it's again it, but this is like it, it's gone a different way because i thought it'd all be about community and actually we've got one that's about post-humanism and it runs from the university in utrecht and, and um, a professor there, Rosie Bray-Dotty, and the group of people that are on that are from all over the world, so it's a global thing. So it's, yeah, there's just loads of difference. And I don't pry, I don't look in, do you know, but I can see how many courses there are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm. And is this all completely non-profit, or how does that work? Yeah, it's totally, it's completely free. I mean, I... I I do keep thinking I'll do something about this in one way or another. Not not to ever charge it will always be free. But currently I just I just fund it out of my um well, I just self fund it. You know, and so that that that's got some issues in terms of um it costs money, mm-hmm. but it's got it's got a lot more benefits that I, that that there are no um there are no people that I need to to respond to mm-hmm. do you know there are no there are no external milestones that we have to hit in order to keep it running it can be free and easy and we've got a community cooks community code which is about only doing things for good and it and it's very very small but it's also do you know we kind of believe that people buy into that ethos so it's totally without institutional backing or without funding and are any of the people using this platform from, you know, local community uh, industry or business or is it more kind of, uh, you know, describe some of the other uses of it? I just wondered if there was ever sort of connecting in terms of the use of it as a training platform for specific. It would be an excellent training platform. And, and the reason that it has, and it has been used as a training platform, but I'm going to tell you, I think, one of the we've been encouraged in the past with different organisations to to take the route of promoting it to organisations as a as an R and D option, you know, mm-hmm. or as an L and D rather option, and we've had it happen, but we, it's happened in the way of the ethos of the kook. And, and if I explain this, I don't want to do it badly. I want to do it. I want to give it justice because it's as meaningful, although it seems often quite nuanced and quite marginal actually what's happened is people in organizations have used it to do the things that organizations don't always know need doing mm-hmm. an example is last year we had somebody who worked in um uh i nearly said the word a bit a mobile 
phone retailer that's National High Street. Right. And one of our students works there. Um, and so between, but th this had nothing really to do with the course that she was on, but she was looking at, so what she wanted to do is, is to create something because she realized that the people that were coming to buy the things from her at work didn't actually know how to use sometimes even the basics of the phones that they were buying and very often the more complex things of the phones that they were buying. So what she did was create something, smartphone thinking, she called it, which was about how people can switch the phones. It was, in the end, she targeted it older people. Mm -hmm. And so she had the kook on one end and she had workshops. But once she told the people at work, they really supported it and they gave her some facility to do that and some time in her week to do that. And she created it. It was something that she'd experienced on the shop floor. It didn't have an immediate commercial impact. People mm -hmm. didn't spend more because of it. Do you know, there wasn't a profit element to it, but it was good in terms of customer service. She did it because that's the kind of person she was. And that sort of developed and became something else. You yeah. know, so I saw that one. It's actually really cool because uh, I think everyone will know someone in their family who's like, you know, can you help me work out how to do this, this and this and on their phone? Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, it, what we've said very much, and I say this in terms of the people I work with, is avoid design in isolation. And I've worked in technology and educational technology. In fact, in my office right now, I've got two boxes of voting sticks that I know we paid thousands of pounds for in years gone by, that now you could buy the, both of those for £60 on eBay. There is so much money that sloshes around mm -hmm. in ed technology and for me, it's you've got to begin with the people you intend to use it. You know, what do we mean by educational technology? Because some of it, it has the potential to transform what people do and how they do it. But it has to begin with a recognition of who they are as humans and as societies and as organizations and as smaller communities. You know, and, and that's what happens when you do that is... You know, the technology might transform completely from what you intended to use to what you eventually do use. Well, on that basis, um, can you describe what some of your learners are like? So I don't know if there's a particular, you know, if you have a wide variety of people that um, when you're engaging with students. But, um, yeah, just some idea of the, the kind of demographics and sort of student populace. So my my formal official fee-paying students you mean now rather than Cook's users is that what we're uh, yeah, yeah 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 okay so um Blackburn College and I'm very proud of what we do here but it's it's I suppose it's that we don't have a concept of community college in the UK like they do in the States but it would be one if we did it's very much the majority of our HE students I think it's somewhere like 80% come from within 15 miles of the college itself, which is very different to a, you know, a, a traditional university. In fact, it's probably inverted that number, isn't it? And um, uh, our students are also of a, a range of ages. So our students, rather than being of a group age in our third year that have just left now, so we have 40, 40 students, uh, the ages from there were 21 people who'd started at the traditional age, a few of that number, up till to mid-40s. Uh, we've got people who have families, people who are in work, people from a, a diverse 
really is um, true of every course on earth, I suppose, because people are all different. But we are very, I suppose, non-traditional. It's the term that gets thrown around quite a lot. Interestingly as well, we have lots of students who are first time in their family attenders of university. And this really helps. So the concepts of things like kooks and technology really help because people need to be convinced of the purpose of academia. So if you're 38 and you've lived a life quite successfully, but then you want something more from education, there's got to be something in that educational mission, you know, that task, that three years, that justifies the expense, but also justifies the time and effort you're expected to give it. And I think doing project-based work and doing community-related work is often a route in and it allows people to do something more with the experiences that they already have. Mm-hmm. And so and so that's that's combining the kind of kook platform or other things such as apprenticeships. Yeah, I think so. And and I think something like the the apprenticeship models and things where we have a combination of work and study is something that allows people to the expense now involved in higher education can't be ever it can't be dismissed it can't be looked over mm-hmm. it's it's incredibly important and although i've got lots of colleagues and people at other universities where the discussion is often about the value of education and education for the sake of education, which I'm, I firmly believe in, you know, self-development is really important. Mm. I know that my students continually talk about the need to to get something back from the amount of money that they're putting in. You know, so to have £24,000, which would be our fee regime, uh, over three years, it's 8000 a year rather than the full and the nine and the nine and a half elsewhere. But that amount of money has to be justified by being making them something more. And it's not just for self-development. It has to be an economic thing as well. Uh, and, yeah, Cooks relates a lot to that. But, but it's more. I think it's more because the way that you talk to people is not about accruing skills. It's not that vocational education... It's not that community purposeful education is somehow just a series of skills, whereas Mm. a more traditional academic education is somehow more brilliant because because the concepts that lie within skill, the concepts that lie within dealing with other people, the concepts of finding purpose, you know, so these are. These are things that are they're difficult to teach as standalone things, but once experienced, you can relate them back to theory then, you know, because you've experienced it. You know the difference between a dialogue-based education and an instruction-based education. You know where one works and one doesn't, For a, you know, just as a little example. But those things are experienced rather than just discussed. Yeah, completely. I think it's fascinating because it's like uh, I'm reading this book at the moment called Econocracy and um, a lot of in there is about, um, you know, the idea of vocational versus liberal education. Um, but I would, I would agree. I think, you know, uh, there's, there's it's less of a dichotomy like that and it's more the two bleed into one another, I think. 
Yeah, I think so, and I, and maybe that's the that's what the the future now has to be. You know, is is has come into terms with that. I know that you know there's the, the idea of the Veblenian, just how you would say it, that Tostein Veblen and and the Veblen bargain. Oh, right. yep, but, yep. Yeah, and and that and that was in like the, the nineteen well nineteen hundreds, nineteen twenties maybe. But we've never seemed to have moved away from that. You know, that division between a commercially viable mm. series of ideas and then an academically, you know, glorious set. They've never crossed over. And I, I, I don't know. I think places like Blackburn College and colleges like us and also a lot of the the universities in the cities, they're having to deal with reality now rather than the concept of... Mm. Um, academia for the purpose of academia we, we, we've got a food bank like 200 meters up the road from where we are you know that the we've got food bank de, say um depositing spaces in the in the the atrium that we see the first thing you come in every day there's a hardship to reality mm-hmm. as long as and there's also a beauty to reality you know there's there are challenges there's the, the concepts of climate change the concepts of political turmoil you know and, and, and economic change none of these things can be taught in courses that take three years to develop and then five years to to get through you know that they're happening here and now and so we need people to be more responsive in an educational process that's more responsive that's and, i love it <laughs> yeah it's but true. you know that but that, yeah. that, 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 that that's exactly as you say and i think we're, we're we're saying the same thing that these these pieces of reality that seem like hardships and things that, and barriers that get in the way actually if we look at the the philosophers uh in, in themselves I've been reading about uh, Georges Bataille. I, I, he, he lived oh, a very yeah. strange life. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I used to really enjoy reading him at university. I did an English literature degree. so. Oh, did you? Right, okay. So, I mean, some of his stuff is, uh, it, it, you know, it, it's, it, it's beyond what you would expect. <laughs> but I, but what I, when I was reading... Wait, he had like an eye on the top of his head or something like that. I can't remember. George, well, George Bataille wrote the story of the eye, which... Um, which is like I suppose it's surrealist. It's it's a little, yeah. It's a it's a book to read with an open mind. I'd say that, <laughs> but but it's from a long time. But when I was reading about his life, and this is true of Roland Barthes, it's true of Gilles Deleuze, it's true of it's true of Karl Marx, it's true of all the the people that pepper our education and courses. They live lives that encountered and were written about the encounters they had with reality. You know, not not just people sat in mm. universities as, as elite places that were cut off from these arguments and discourses. And and we need to remember that, I think, you know, rather than say, you know, well, you've got the theoretical and the beautiful and the creative and they're all in the university and then you've got the ugly and the functional and the utilitarian and they're all in the, the skill-based vocational courses. Because actually all those skill-based courses, the ideas of the skills, the idea of concepts of making things and becoming things, they are driven by, you know, a, 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 I don't know. I know I was going to say a more pure philosophy, but they're driven by a philosophy as well, you know. And there's well, the sort of the idea of suffering is is life, and uh, yeah, and you know, it's not uh, it's not all done in a vacuum, I suppose. 
Yeah, I've got, we're going off in all kinds of places, aren't we? So. It's very philosophical. So, um, to sort of wrap up, I was going to touch upon your work in coaching and mentoring because I thought a lot of people listening in would be re- really interested in that. But, but also, um, I always ask our guests, you know, um, if there's anything they're reading at the moment that they that they really enjoy, or other places that they like to go to for inspiration. So that could be people that they like talking to, or books that they return to or podcasts or where, wherever you anything you'd like to share with our listeners that you're enjoying at the moment okay um i'm reading quite a few things at the moment and i'll tell you what, an interesting place that i go and it's not a place at all it's an action but it involves places which is walking hmm. and i've done it all my life and i'm really interested in how that seems to be re-emerging and hmm. um the, the the idea of the derive we took students away for a derive we took them, just dropped them in Liverpool actually for a full day and I, and I said what do you think of that and I, <laughs> I don't think they actually when they've written the reviews for the end of the year it was the thing that every single student mentioned every single one but anyway but I think the idea of walk I, I've been um, we went to Porto this summer. And we found ourselves walking, and uh, we did we did 15 miles of one of the Camino ways, mm. and there's a one from Porto up to Santiago de Compostela, and then there's obviously the 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 Spanish one. So walking, I think, is something that I've done outdoor lectures this year, and we've done the derive, and I'm we're really into. I'm really into the return to movement mm. and education and away from staticness and i'm doing a conference in uh, at goldsmiths there's a whole conference this is how this thing's beginning to me at goldsmiths in september uh 4th and 5th i think or 5th and 6th it's the thursday and friday whatever in september um and they're going to be every presenter every academic every speaker is doing it via a series of walks around hmm. goldsmith college so i think that's coming together and i don't know i suppose that i've been reading all for the last five years gilles de Luz, uh and things about the rhizomatic mm. and i find him really i think he's one of those people i've been reading for five years because it takes me so long to understand what a single page means but i'm getting there now and, and do you know and I, and I start to see all things all slot together he says the book's like a little machine <laughs> he says that he says we're like little machines as well but by me reading this book it's like plugging one machine into another machine and then me i then become a different machine and i plug in and now i'm plugging into you and you're a different mm. machine and then well, you know, the, well, it's funny. Content. It's funny. It's funny you mentioned that because one of my questions was: uh, you've described your work as having a deluso guterian approach, which does ring some bells from my English literature degree days. I'm thinking rhizomes and interconnectedness. So, uh, hooray! Yeah. I remembered correctly. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know that the guy I told you about the MOOC, Dave Cormier, Dave Cormier he ran right, a. Yeah. Yeah, he he ran a MOOC that we I've met quite a few people who are now considered really firm friends um, we, it, from the UK. This was global, but it's called Rise or Fourteen, mm-hmm. and that was all about rhizomatic approaches to education. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I've, but we need some I, more of that just in the that. general discourse now, don't we? Because you know people are sort of cutting off those uh, those tubers of uh, reaching out to one another. It feels like, and it feels like all the roots are dying away a bit. But yeah, because um, 
Another thing, what I did start to read at the beginning of the summer was a lot about populism because I had a real concern with it. You know, that um, the idea that populist is necessarily a negative when populist also holds within it something about popu popular, you know, <laughs> that people actually come together and share around. So I think Extinction Rebellion, these aren't two radical concepts, but mm. I think Extinction Rebellion seems a really exciting thing because it doesn't seem to have any leaders, but it's got a very clear purpose, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, which compares very differently so to the Green Party. I'm mm -hmm. in the Green Party, but that's very different where it's got all the traditional hierarchy of, you know, Caroline Lucas or whoever, it would be down there, all the way down, and yeah. everything's political. And But Extinction Rebellion is very much like it's appearing here and it's gone now and it's over there now and it's doing this and it's doing that. And and I think, you know, that concept of, would we call that populist because it relies on numbers? But it's it's very exciting that, you know, that, that things can be changed yeah. by a series of actions that we own our world and we can transform our world by working together. And they always seem to be positive, you know, and, and, and I think they just get caught up with the populace being the mm. negative, you mm -hmm. know, being like the, you know, the the, the quite naysay, resistant, mm -hmm. unpleasant mentality features. But actually, there's quite a lot in populism. I'm not I'm not I'm not a populist. I don't. I just feel that, you know, that it's interesting. Talk it's about, like, um, yeah. you know, when we talk about technology neither being uh, good nor evil, it's just how you use it. And I suppose you could say the same of some of these movements. It's, you know, how it's interpreted. So they, the XR would say, you know, let's have a people's assembly. And, um, you know, that's a better way of, um, you know, bringing, uh, I suppose, managing some of the difficult broadness of pop popular movement but um i read the other day that um the term idiot derives i think from idiot idiot with an e i think it's the greek which means you know to not engage in um political or public discourse so you know populism okay. is against uh, becoming an idiot by removing yourself from all of that as well so we've got to keep oh, keep, keep in with it <laughs> yeah i i think yeah and so that that so idiots then I like that a lot. That's made me think because then that this the, the whole idea now of votes. I mean, we must all be tired, no matter what votes people did in terms of the referendum. Mm. But the idea of leave means leave or remain. Do you know like the idea that a single vote ends all conversation and yeah. no further dialogue? And that you know that kind of idiocy is. And I'm not talking about idiots being on either side, there, but the idea that you can have no other thing but that one mark. Yeah, I think that goes a little very bit finite, and and the, you know the narrative likes to we like to try and keep everything nice and clean, but obviously it's not like that. It's uh, continual dialogue and back and forth, and things moving and changing and being mercurial. Absolutely, and you know what? Tomorrow is 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 hell day for me in one sense. In that tomorrow is the day where I spend my life, my year, my my. Um, I, I consider Cooks to be to be like kind of friendly and like part of my working life but also part of my my real you know my my outside life mm. and so I spend all that and my working life talking about how education is all things and many things and multiple and diverse and then tomorrow we've got that day where newspapers mm. and tv cameras will go to colleges all around the country because it's a level results day mm. looking looking for the broken hearted and yeah. i'm looking for the elated and the idea that these figures these numbers these 
I think they still get A's for A level, don't they? A, B's and C's. They haven't gone to one to nine like the GCSEs. But they they cue and and they see these things as if they matter. And now I'm not. If you've got five A stars, people are going to be elated, and I don't want to prick any bubble there. But do you know these things are such a narrow concept mm. of a life. Mm-hmm. And and no matter how far we move away, the concepts of Russell groups, the concepts of Oxbridge, the concepts of A-level successes, they still dominate discourse. They still dominate what we mean by success and what we mean by power and what we mean by authority and justification and all these things. And they mean so little. And until we get, you know, that dialogue that takes us away from that and allows us to start talking about what other ways can we measure success and value and impact and, and purpose? Until we get there, we've not gone anywhere, have we? We're, we're 300 years back. I, uh, anyway, that's it. <laughs> yeah, so tomorrow's hell day. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I hope you get through it. And, you know, um, I agree. It's, it's, it's just one part of um, hopefully what a long and healthy life for all your students, is, you know, uh, with all of yeah. them. Yeah. The great uh, things that are going to happen uh, in front of them. So, um, um, well, that's regardless been an amazing. Yeah, regardless. So that's been an amazing chat, and um, thank you so much for your time. It's it's got absolutely tons in there. Um, if people want to kind of uh, have a look at the kooks and um, you know uh, um, follow up with what you're doing, what's the best way for them to connect with you? Yeah, I, I do have a, a Cooks email, which is peter at kooks.co.uk, C-O-O-C-S. Brilliant. But also I'm at Shuki1 on Twitter, which is probably the best way because because of phone access and ease, I tend to see anything on there every day, two or mm-hmm. three times a day. Mm-hmm. And, and emails, I, I, it might be a few days before I check those. That's brilliant. Well, uh, good luck and keep keep up the good work. And um, I'm going to ping you some. Let's do some uh, book chat over email. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. Thanks, Sophie. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, let's stay in touch. And uh, yeah, I'll I'll, um, I'll uh, look you up on Twitter now. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, I do. And then just send me a message if if because um, sometimes I'll, I'll get to see if somebody follows one or that'll come up. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, but I'll be make sure that we're in touch but thanks Sophie right, good to speak Peter. to you thanks thank you take care bye 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 that's all for this week's episode thanks so much for listening in and sending your listener voicemails in UFI Voctec Trust for supporting and Dr Peter Shuki for being such a fantastic guest If you're interested in updates, including our top picks on articles currently circulating, grants, reports and much more, make sure you sign up to our newsletter at theedtechpodcast.com. Stay safe, stay well. Bye bye.